Hello and welcome to Talking Transitions, a new special podcast series brought to you by Foresight Climate and Energy and EY. I'm David Weston, Editor-in-Chief at Foresight, and in this series we'll be looking at how the transition to a sustainable economy, both from an environmental but also social perspective, is affecting three key areas – the energy and resources industry, the financial services sector, and government. Guiding me along the way will be key EY thought leaders from the three different areas. In today's episode, I'm joined by George Atala from EY's government and public sector team. Hi, George. How are you? Hello, David. Glad to be with you. In this episode, we are delving into the role of cities as innovation and employment hubs within the energy transition. Our guests today are Abbas El-Zain, a professor at the School of Civil Engineering and head of the Geoenvironmental Laboratory at the University of Sydney in Australia. We're also joined by Ralph Hall, a professor of urban affairs and planning at the Virginia Tech University in the United States. Ralph is also Director of Undergraduate Studies at the University's School of Public and International Affairs and Associate Director at its Centre for the Future of Work, Places and Practices. Thank you both for joining us today on Talking Transitions. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, David. George, maybe we could quickly begin with you. Cities are an important part of the energy transition, but are they set up for the energy transition? So thank you for that question, David. Look, I mean, the short answer is they can be. And we've seen differences between cities across the world. As you know, at EY, we work with quite a few cities, large and small, and we've been very privy to some of the challenges that that they face. I can start with one immediate challenge that's faced by cities. If you look at how revenue generation is done at the city level and how much money cities have to spend on big projects, it's not usually commensurate with the amount of revenue that's collected at the central government or at the federal government level. So the cities have less to play with, but the expectations from their citizens is much higher because citizens get most of their services, whether it's education, public transport, whatnot, from cities. So there is a bit of a disparity between the expectation of city dwellers from their cities and what cities can potentially do within the resources that are available to them. But we are now living in an area with just immense challenges and sustainability and climate change, of course, is is at the forefront. And if you look at the, the amount of funding, but it's not just funding, right, but the big ideas that have to be generated. And if you, if you can keep in mind that um, we are moving in, an area, in, a, in a world of increasing urbanization and that the pandemic, you know, this idea that we'll be all working from home and, you know, we can live on, on the top of a mountain and, you know, who needs cities anymore? I think that's been disproven fairly quickly. Uh, people want to be in cities. Urbanization, I, I, I expect, will continue. But the role of cities and the services that are being delivered will, will change drastically over time. So, look, I mean, we, we are very proud to be part of this dialogue that's happening with cities. I think we, we can point to some shining examples from around the world where we've worked. I, I personally am very optimistic and positive about the future. Um, but I know that it will take a lot of work, uh, not just from the, you know, those who run cities, you know, not just the city officials, but I think the level of engagement. Uh, from all citizens is going to be absolutely essential. Absolutely. Abbas, how about your perspective? Are cities ready for the energy transition? Uh, thank you for the question. And th- th- thanks, George. Um, I think it's, f- it's, first ac- it's important to acknowledge that um, um, while we agree, I think, about what, what we're transitioning from, 
there isn't yet consensus about what we're transitioning towards in, t- in, terms, of, in terms of the energy. So we all agree that um, uh, we're transitioning away from fossil-based uh, energy. Uh, but um, 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 to my mind, the jury is still out on the specific makeup of the future energy landscape. Um, perhaps uh, another way of asking the question is uh, to ask um, whether uh, we can learn, uh, whether there's anything we can learn from cities that have made most strides in this direction. I'm thinking of Copenhagen, Glasgow, Helsinki. I'm not an expert on energy transition, but certainly uh, there seems to be um, uh, uh, some city that have uh, that have moved more towards it. And my, my, my impression, um, uh, obviously, there's a range of factors uh, uh, at play. Um, uh, a recent report by the World Economic Forum highlighted uh, specifically four factors, diverse energy systems, certainty about regulation, uh, significant R&D and carbon pricing. And, and I'm sure there are other factors, but it seems to me uh, that a key element underlying these four factors uh, if you like creating the conditions of possibility uh, for them, a strong local government and and political will, um, uh, political will across all tiers of government, including mm. including national levels. That's certainly the impression that I have from um, uh, 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 from, from from reading on the subject. Mm. Ralph, what about your perspective, uh, especially in North America? Are, are the cities prepared for this energy transition and the transition in general? It's a great question and. I think having worked in many different places around the world, you know, what I really think the answer is, is sort of yes, possibly and no, right? And so if you think about where a city is located, if it's sort of Europe, in the US, Africa, Latin America, um, that's one factor. Then you've got sort of the size of a city. Are we talking sort of mega city, a large city, small city? Um, And that comes with... Uh, different scales of resources that they can put to the challenge of the energy transition. You also need to kind of think about the the different access cities have to, um, you know, different types of capital, right? So there's the financial capital is the big one, um, but also know-how, the sort of human capital. Does a city have experience with new types of energy systems? Um, what about the infrastructure? What types of infrastructure are in place? Uh, does it need to be completely overhauled or built from scratch? Or is it more a case of fine tuning the infrastructure um, for like smart grids, for example? Um, then you've got the natural capital aspect, the resources. Is Did it have space for solar? What about wind potential, right? So all of these factors come together. And if you, um, you know, I was looking around, if you, one, one city, Copenhagen, right, is has the ambition to become the first carbon neutral capital in 2025, right? So that's just a couple of years out. Um, To do that, it will need all the forms of capital, which it by and large has in place, and this kind of very strong policy commitment, which guides everyone to the same end goal objective, right? And so I think it will be kind of a leading um, city in this regard because it has this sort of capital in place and the, the strategy in place to to pull everyone together um, to achieve it. Absolutely. George, why are we talking about cities? Why are cities so pivotal in driving the energy transition, the transition more widely in innovation and employment? 
Look, I, so a lot of great ideas were mentioned by Abbas and, and by, by Ralph, but, uh, you know, let's think about why cities are, are so important at this point. Um, so the OECD expects that about 75% of the world will be living in cities by 2050, I believe. And if you look at folks who are over the age of 65, that percentage is even much higher. And so you are expecting a lot of urbanization. And with urbanization, you know, that's, again, more burden on the cities. And so if you're thinking about resource consumption and power utilization, it's going to be highest in cities rather than in non-urban areas. So if you're going to tackle the problem head on, that's usually where you need to start, where the problem is going to be biggest. Uh, but, but that's not the only reason why it's important. You know, I look at cities as well as a source of new ideas, of innovation, of, of, you know, I mean, this is where the concentration is going to happen. But, you know, not just the concentration of know-how, also the concentration of capital. That's, that's where, where it tends to be as well. So you have all of the ingredients that make the problem more challenging, but also many of the ingredients, fortunately, that also make the problem perhaps more addressable. Um, and that all happens uh, within, within the city confines. So this is why it's, it's absolutely important. And look, I mean, you know, we, we were prior to the pandemic, if you allow me, I mean, we were, we have within EY a future cities practice. And, you know, before the pandemic, we were thinking about some of the changes and, and what might happen in cities. So we were thinking about, um, you know, work from home before the pandemic. I mean, I don't think anyone expected that this would accelerate so much because of the pandemic. And now it's becoming part of everyday life, right? I mean, it's become the new normal. So we were thinking about that, but we were also thinking about, you know, the, the urban center. Um, would that still be where, you know, business would be concentrated? And, you know, we were thinking that that might change as well. In fact, now post-pandemic, you will see that a lot of the, you know, real estate projects that are still happening are converting uh, office buildings into residential areas. So, I mean, some of the changes that we were foreseeing got accelerated uh, during the pandemic. I think where we need to push and, 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 you know, be more active is what are the great ideas that allow us to tackle some of the challenges that Ralph and Abbas are mentioning. Take, take the workforce, for instance, that Ralph referred to. Cities need to have the right workforce with the right skills so that they can help ensure that transition. But they lack those resources. I mean, this is, this is, we're not just talking about labor force at a national or at city level. I'm speaking about the labor force working in the city, having those skills mm. that are required to help with that transition. And in my discussions, you know, when we speak with cities and city officials, they actually tell us this, you know, we'd like to have more people who understand this. Also, you know, we've been doing some research and we see there is a tremendous opportunity for an increase in employment in green skills, right? So, so, so there's another, you know, I just mentioned the role because, you know, they need to have the right workforce mm -hmm. to help with that transition. But there's also a huge opportunity. If you're going to transition out of fossil fuels into green uh, jobs, then where is the skilling and reskilling that is required to allow this to happen? So, look, I mean, I'd love to hear what Abbas and, and Ralph have to say about this, but, 
you know, in my mind, you know, we talk a lot about capital and, and we should, in fact, talk about it. But labor and the workforce, I think, is going to be a huge challenge going forward. I mean, I, I think I'd just add um, to what George was saying that, you know, if you look at the, the number of jobs created by sort of similar in, amounts of investment in renewable energy versus non-renewable energy, you tend to have more jobs created in renewable energy, right? So I think, um, you know, it is a job creation agenda if you're looking into a, an energy transition towards renewable energy. I think you're going to have more jobs because um, it's sort of an emergent new market. Um, the the traditional fossil fuel jobs are, you know, have been made highly efficient, right? And so you've got the deployment of technology that essentially over time displaces jobs. And so I think as we move into this new era, I think we'll get more jobs if we if we lean into um, renewable energy. I just want to come, quickly come back to what George said about how the pandemic has um, maybe accelerated a few of the trends that they were seeing in cities. Has it changed your outlook um, into the role of cities with more people maybe moving out of cities, perhaps even to suburban areas, but even further? And what impact is that having on the transition of cities uh, and where priorities perhaps lie? So, look, I mean, the pandemic changed a lot, right? But it changed in the sense of accelerating what was already happening. So I don't see, I've never seen the pandemic as, you know, we were thinking of, you know, going in one direction and then there was this contingent event, you know, this, this critical juncture, you know, the pandemic then, then sent us in a different direction. I don't think that's what happened. I think those changes were already beginning to happen and all that the pandemic did was accelerate uh, that transition. Um, again, that, that, that shift, that uh, dissonance between what people expect from their cities to provide and what the cities are capable of providing. And, and I'll mention a few examples to you, if you don't mind, just from, from you know, the work that, that we've done at EY. Um, I, I think that dissonance is still very, very much there, right? It, it hasn't gone. The, the expectation, what, what, what is my city capable of doing and, and what is it doing right now? If you, if you look at some of the new urban plans, you know, th this idea of, you know, creating communities, livable communities where you don't have to actually get in the car to go everywhere. And we've seen some cities do this already. You know, if you look at what Vancouver is doing, I mean, Abbas mentioned Copenhagen and uh, Copenhagen, I, you know, I've always, I'm, I'm amazed when I'm there by, by the, I mean, Copenhagen is not a warm place, right? But if I look at the number of people bicycling in, in Copenhagen, it always just amazes me. Um, so those big urban changes not only cost money, but they require, you know, some reshifting, reprioritization of previous plans. We've had, um, a few clients come to us and say, look, you know, we were going to invest in infrastructure uh, and we had allocated money for investing in, you know, old traditional in infrastructure. Let's build more roads and bridges and, and, you know, whatnot. But we know that, you know, that infrastructure, once we build, it's going to be with us for many, many years. Uh, can you help us think if we should be making this investment? Because we're not sure, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, we need that investment. Uh, so maybe we should be thinking differently. I mean, I'm encouraged when we get uh, requests like these, because 
you know, cities know that once they put the money in and in, in, into the ground, trying to do something different after the fact is going to be very difficult. I'm also very encouraged by some of the um, uh, changes in or investments in urban transport. Um, a city that I'm sure Ralph knows well, uh, Baltimore, for instance, if you look at West Baltimore, uh, the ability to get from West Baltimore, where there are very few jobs, to the east side of Baltimore, where the jobs are, or the southern side of Baltimore, is very difficult because there's no way to find good, reliable mass transit. And so you get a city with very high employ- unemployment on one side and, you know, employment that's more average like on the other side so you know so it's so we talk a lot about transition and we're thinking about sustainability but i I think our thinking is that sustainability part of a livability uh question and that the livability question needs to be addressed by doing the things that copenhagen for instance is doing that vancouver is trying to do right that that change the environment and make it more livable so how are cities going about that? Abbas, what are the sort of key sustainability challenges that cities are facing today? And are they already adapting or, or even mitigating against the impacts of climate change as well? I'd like to um, uh, pick up on, um, uh, on a couple of things uh, George and Ralph um, uh, mentioned. The first one is that sense in which, uh, something that George mentioned, that sense in which Cities are such concentrations of people and wealth and, uh, and ideas that it means two things. It means both uh, large ambitions, but it means also large challenges. I, th- I, think that, that, I think that's very important to recognize from the outset. I think on the positive side, my feeling is that there's been a general convergence um, of ideas about cities in the past few decades in the following sense, that um, we sort of know what kind of cities we'd like to live in. They tend to be, uh, at least part of them, compact, safe, uh, physically and digitally highly connected. Um, The characteristics of the system that provide energy, transport, water, food, waste services, all of these systems have to be smart, integrated, efficient, carbon neutral, of course, uh, and widely affordable. Um, The cities have to be rich in green and climate-adapted spaces. They have to be resilient to heat and floods. Um, And also the architecture and urban forms um, need to reinforce rather than fracture social connectivity and promote a sense of belonging and identity. I think that sense of belonging and identity in cities has become quite uh, uh, quite big in, 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 in urban uh, planning literature. And I'm sure Ralph uh, will know much more about that than I do. Now, of course, all this sounds wonderful and easy um, when it's put like this. The challenge, of course, is how to get there, given how far we are uh, from, from that image in most cities around the world. And, and as, as, as Ralph mentioned, um, uh, there's a wide variety of cities, a wide range of factors uh, in terms of size, form, and so on. And the answer, specific answers of the how um, will, 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 will depend of, on, on that, of course. The nice, the rather nice um, uh, uh, paradox here, uh, I think, is that while each city brings its own answers to the how question, I think experiences will also be highly transferable. Certain aspects of the experiences will be highly transferable because cities do share a lot uh, with each other. What I want to add here, again, coming back to the question of ambition and challenges that, that, that George mentioned, is that I think a historical lens is important here. Um, 
I think it's important to recognize that what we are doing uh, collectively, uh, and, and I'm sure some cities are doing that more than others, is really we are remaking our cities uh, to undo the profound damage uh, caused by uh, caused on the uh, wrought on the urban fabric, if you like, by the past 300 years of motorization and consumerism. Uh, as in what I mean by motorization and consumerism, uh, the extent to which they've become guiding principles for urban design. Sure. Um, with all the destructive material and energy flow that this, this, this has generated. Uh, really, I'm thinking about how our cities at a certain um, a time around, you know, between 75 and 100 years ago, uh, became car-centered, carbon-emitting, um, uh, overheated um, uh, urban sprawls, um, and you can you can go on naming uh, some of the some of the ills um, uh, that 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 have been generated, um, and and mostly oblivious to the ecological foundation of the of the of the survival. So undoing this damage is a big challenge, but it's a necessary one. Um, uh, and I think uh, through this lens, energy transition and sustainability and resilience to climate change become simply um, uh, different facets of the same project. I think this is, um, uh, uh, George summed it up with the word livability. Uh, and I think that's a nice summing up uh, of, 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 of those challenges. But I think it emphasizes how these aspects uh, are, are, are connected. I haven't talked specifically about adaptation to climate change, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that down the track. Uh, but I stop here. Thank you, Abbas. Um, so a big change needed in, in most cities around the world and big opportunities are there. To do that, I guess we need uh, significant levels of investment. Ralph, what sort of new economic ideas and frameworks are being developed that can help cities in the energy transition? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. And I've really been looking at uh, new economic ideas for probably 20 years, and it sort of connects with the, the challenges of inequality that we've been seeing over that time period, but in a larger context of sustainable development. And so if you, if you look at what has been emerging, sort of, I would say, in the last decade, um, there are ideas such as donut economics, right, that was put forward by Kate if you've got the democracy, collaboratives, um, community wealth building, there are inclusive capitalism ideas emerging. You've got degrowth um, now as a, a concept, which is coming out as a, a real kind of counterpoint to capitalism. Um, you know, I don't really have time to discuss all of these, but I thought it might be useful uh, to give a, a few, say a few words about community wealth building, right? And this idea really um, at the core, it's, it focuses on creating sort of economic opportunities which retain wealth, right? The idea is to stop wealth leaking out of regions. And it's got some basic pillars or principles which um, I think anyone can, can lean into. Uh, one is looking at what anchor institutions are doing. So universities, hospitals, um, networks of anchor institutions, including firms that aren't going anywhere. And the idea is to do a kind of spending analysis. What are they spending money on? And looking very hard at what could be produced uh, locally, right? So that's sort of step one. Then you've got the idea of if the entities don't exist, you can help create them, right? And so that's what happened in Cleveland, uh, where they created the um, evergreen cooperatives in response to demand from the hospital and universities, so they created a, a laundry cooperative, an energy cooperative, and a food production cooperative. And the idea was to start having, um, you know, 
and business enterprises which are serving demand, um, which broadly distribute the, the wealth created through those activities. And so, if you are, you know, if you're a university like Virginia Tech, you know, we have extension. And we have an extension system, a cooperative extension approach, where we reach out and try and help create economic opportunities. So there's a, a mechanism in place where universities can help do that. And there's there's a whole range of other things, right? You can have a, a commitment to paying a, a living wage, not just a minimum wage, but a wage that people can live on, and that can be certified. Um, and then for all of this, what you're trying to do is advance, advance sort of sustainable, regenerative development. Right, you're not only just trying to sustain what you have, but improve it through regeneration. Um, so that's another component. So I think all of these economic ideas have this kind of focus on creating locally rooted um, economic opportunities for community. Right, and so I think what they have is, is a sort of toolkit of ideas which you can deploy to do that. So that's why I'm really interested in these ideas and you can target them on energy. You can have community energy systems, right? And who owns the energy system? Ownership matters. Uh, that's the, one of the most important things I keep stressing to everyone I talk with, ownership. You can have income from capital ownership and you can have income from your labor. And I think that's the future that we'll see is this growing sort of capital income element. And I think the, tran the energy transition is a really unique space to think about this kind of dual income model. Do you see it requiring new metrics coming in? Is it purely financial metrics that these need to be measured by? Or is it, as you mentioned, community wealth? Are there other metrics that we can measure to help improve cities and identify where cities need to improve uh, both energy transition, but also just transitioning into a, a 21st century urban area? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, what, what I'm thinking of is the, the European Environment Agency um, put together a, a really interesting report which talks about urban sustainability, right, in Europe. And it kind of talks about this sort of nexus model where um, it identified eight, I think, general categories, things like climate resilience, um, quality of life, urban accessibility, the things we've been talking about, food security, um, sort of uh, circular economic systems, um, local economies, clean energy, building, sustainable building. And the idea is that these are nexus ideas. They overlap and connect with each other, right? So in terms of metrics, I think it, what you need to identify are the metrics which are critical to these ideas, such as you know quality of life, urban accessibility, but also recognize that they may interconnect. Right, and that that could allow some really unique um, planning and conversations. The, the The trick is to have a, a process in place which allows sort of siloed activity areas to mm. work together. And so, the metrics could be a way to allow that conversation to advance. So, I I think we need a. It's almost like a dashboard portfolio model. I mean, that's really. The only way you can do that properly, there's not one metric that will drive this, um, you know, because it might be that an accessibility or quality of life metric is more important to residents in a in a city, which will then drive sort of a, an energy solution to meet those objectives, if that makes sense. So it's, it's really an interesting, it's a hard, hard question to answer, but mm -hmm. I think there's a, a lot you can unpack there. Yeah. 
please. And, and David, if I if I may um, look, because the way so there are something that we need to clearly demarcate here. It's it's how cities identify a return on investment, and how you know private capital would identify return on investment, and they're not the same thing. Uh, a city will look at an economic rate. So, you know, presuming that we need to mobilize private funding for specific projects. You know, so you're, you're asking the private sector to put in private capital to invest in a few projects that would improve livability. The city would, would calculate an economic rate of return. So they will put in their, you know, health benefits, the fact that they're saving money, for instance, for not building new roads, uh, the fact that, you know, so all of those um, things that would actually be of value to citizens would be calculated, added in, you know, quantified, monetized, and then added into the, the calculation for the rate of return. Um, private capital does not look at it that way. What they are interested in is a return on investment for their private capital. So basically, they're, they're seeking to achieve a rate of return commensurate with the risk of that project, right? So, so there's an estimation of risk and of monetary returns. Those are not the same as you, you might expect, you know, the, the you know, pr- rate of return, return on investment for private capital is going to be at a much higher threshold than what the city would want. And so there's that gap. And, and the, then the question is, how do you fill that gap? And there are ways. I mean, this is not a, a, a new problem, right? I mean, we've been doing this now and, you know, there's, there's a lot of history and a lot of really excellent projects and some that didn't work as well. But, but again, I mean, when we talk about we need to get private sector mobilized and engaged to finance some of those projects that would improve livability, let's at least agree from the start that there is going to be a big difference between what the private sector or private capital would consider to be a, an adequate return on investment and what the city might consider for itself to be an adequate return. So we've tried over the last few years to work with cities to try at least, you know, I mean, and, and what I'm going to mention next will not solve the problem. Uh, but I mean, there have been some ways to help the problem. So for instance, in Australia, we worked on what is known on, uh, as the asset recycling program. So basically, you know, you dispose, you decommission old assets, you know, you sell them off, and then the, the, the funding goes into funds that are actually used then to create new infrastructure that's more suitable for, for the world of the future. Um, we've seen a number of cities ask for proposals um, you know, so basically come with your idea and bring your money. And if it works, then, you know, you can make money on. So I'll give you an example. Um, waste, uh, col- solid waste collection, right? Um, there are now new ideas to place sensors on uh, waste bins to detect when the waste bin is full. And then, you know, you can send a, a truck to pick up the waste instead of having to send them on a schedule. So now you can be a bit more reactive, which would ideally reduce your cost of operations. The savings that you get from this, that goes entirely to the provider of the technology. I mean, so there are some ways to do this. Um, We saw during the 5G network rollout, a lot of cities had, and we helped many cities, um, strike deals with the telecom operators. So we will give you 
you know, access, we will give you right of way, but in return, we want a share of, of the bandwidth so that we can actually give access, you know, internet access and, and uh, digital uh, connectivity to some of the underserved areas. So there are ways to actually achieve some of the objectives of livability without spending a lot of money, but that does not do away, you know, of, with the with the first challenge that I identified, which is the difference between an acceptable rate of return for government and for cities is going to be at a much lower threshold than what private capital mm. is, is going so, to yeah, be seeking. But that interplay between public uh, and private enterprise is essential for cities. How, how does that interplay um, play out uh, as cities advance down the energy transition? And is that is that where the opportunities lie in that sort of collaboration? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I don't think... There is no mm-hmm. way to answer this question, by, but yes, mm-hmm. right? There has to be collaboration between both because, you know, I mean, you do have great ideas coming out of the private sector. This is where there's a lot of liquidity uh, that's available, right? So, I mean, so that collaboration is going to be absolutely essential. But we also forget about, and I'm sorry, I'm, I know I've, I've went on and I, you know, I need to turn it over to someone else, but I'll give you an example because we talk also about, engage, we, we always talk about private capital and cities as if that's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, that's the dynamic. It's a binary dynamic. It's not. Because you also have the citizens, you have, you know, kind of civil society and whatnot. And I think there needs to be also a higher engagement and a, you know, better communication between government and citizens as to, you know, how can we mobilize everyone against that goal rather than to say it's just a discussion between private capital and cities. Absolutely. Thank you, George. Uh, maybe, Abbas, can we bring you in here? Um, we mentioned, uh, you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of uh, lessons that cities can apply uh, almost universally, uh, but cities are also very different. They have different cultures, different peoples, different histories. Will their transitions be just as diverse and different as the cities are? If I may say, just um, 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 just make one, just just say something, comment on 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 something George said, and then and then get get to your question. Uh, it's just just a, just a qualification um, uh, that I think it's also important to uh, recognise in terms of the relationship between public and private sector, and and who's funding what, and what is the best model. Um, Totally agree that um, uh, it, it's absolutely essential for it to be uh, uh, for, for 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 private capital to be there for 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 the private sector to be there. But I think when you think about the emergency, uh, the idea of emergency climate change, climate change as an emergency, what is an emergency? Um, uh, an emergency is a state of affairs which uh, requires uh, extraordinary. Uh, uh, extraordinary intervention, usually intervention by the state, um, not exclusively, but usually there's a sense of mobilization of resources among citizenry and private sector and public sector, but usually the sector that has uh, 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 that has a lot of capacity uh, 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 to act in an emergency is the state. And it seems to me it's important to keep that in mind with the climate emergency, that there might be cases where um, um, the urgency of climate change uh, uh, does require um, uh, direct investment uh, also by the by the by the public sector in a certain way. And I know this is a very complex um, uh, uh, topic, and I'm the least qualified to talk about it uh, 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 here. But it seems to me it's it's an important point to keep in mind. 
Now, uh, coming back to your to your, to your question, um, uh, uh, David. Yes, I I, I think there's um, maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit about adaptation. That, that you know the part that I know um, uh, that I know that I know a little bit about here um, is um, is yes, there's going to be absolutely a diversity um, uh, of experience uh, of experiences. Um, at the same time, as as as, as I said earlier. Uh, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, ground for those experiences to be shared, for people to learn from each other, uh, mostly for two reasons. Uh, despite the fact that um, uh, cities have um, uh, 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 their own uniqueness, uh, essentially um, uh, they, they, they share a lot in terms of form, in terms of history, at least groups of cities. If you two coastal cities uh, uh, then you might have quite a lot in common when you start talking to each other. Uh, but also the other reason is that what drives um, a transition both into more resilient cities and a green transition uh, are often technologies that are not uh, unique to cities. Uh, you know, you think about just, 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 just you know, the, the, the electrical car and, and, and storage and wind energy and solar energy. All of these uh, technologies come with their own with their own dynamics, and that will be applicable. Uh, the same dynamics will will to some extent will will apply to all cities. Um, I just want to again pick up on 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 something uh, uh, Ralph said, and it seems to me is very relevant to adaptation as well. Uh, that sense in which um, uh, it's the um, uh, it, it's the it's the investment that have multiple returns or returns in in different sectors that are going to be uh, most attractive. That is absolutely the case. If you look at what's happening in terms of adaptation, and, and as, again, there's a range of experiences happening there, uh, the most promising experiences are absolutely multi-sectoral. I'm thinking about adaptation actions that typically address more than one hazard at the same time. A good example is uh, the way cities are rethinking runoff, um, uh, basically with measures that have multiple effects. You know, it reduces flooding, uh, it reduces, um, uh, it, it improves water security, uh, it provides cooler spaces, it captures carbon dioxide to some extent. Sometimes it reduces water management uh, related um, uh, uh, energy expenditure and, 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 and carbon emissions. Uh, so if you think about Amsterdam's room for the river, uh, you think about Chicago's green rooftops, uh, Dresden community gardens, uh, many cities, including Sydney, have ambitious plans for increasing the urban uh, tree canopy. Um, uh, here again, another example is the uh, uh, an, an, an interesting new, you know, new idea is the Chinese sponge uh, cities. Um, uh, and they're, they're, they're interested not just because of the uh, ambition and because it corresponds to a lot of new ideas that have emerged from the uh, hy urban hydrology, uh, but also because it does offer a cautionary tale. Uh, uh, in the sense that there's one particular city in China, Zhengzhou, uh, uh, is is in in the Henan province. They spent uh, the city spent 14 billion dollars in the past, you know, in, in about in over six or seven years, um, uh, on uh, transforming some of the infrastructure, basically to reduce the impermeability of the surfaces. This impermeability is traditionally with cities. That's what we do with cities. We turn. Um, uh, by, by, you know, by removing the canopy and turning um, uh, a, a, an environment covered with, 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 uh, with different kinds of uh, vegetation, turning it into a built environment, basically we increase, we increase the impermeability and affect quite fundamentally the, the water cycle. And the idea of sponge city is, 
uh, is to return a little bit uh, some of that permeability so that uh, the water cycle is restored to some extent. There's a, there's a sense in which you are, um, uh, you, 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 you restored that water cycle into the fabric of the city. You absorb uh, locally the water, you recycle it, you store it, and so on, rather than convert it into uh, runoff with all the massive uh, wastefulness of this. Um, and the technology is there. The technology has been there for, for, for some time. You can have permeable asphalts, you can have uh, a wetland restorations, and, and so on and so forth. So the interesting thing about Zhengzhou um, is that, um, uh, you know, as, as several Chinese cities have that, have, that, have that ambition, and there's been quite a lot of investment, um, uh, $14 billion over five years. Um, uh, the project is supposed to run until, the transformation is supposed to run until 2030. But what happened is that in uh, uh, 2021, uh, there was a catastrophic flood in the city. And it turned out, uh, despite all this work, uh, that was not enough to prevent that, that, that kind of flooding. Uh, essentially, uh, the infrastructure was uh, meant to be able to cope with about 200 millimeter of rainfall uh, 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 per, per day, and it received that kind of rainfall over over one hour, um, and, and and so this is where I think the more interesting questions uh, start arising in the in the in the adaptation space. This is something very much Australian cities are thinking about. We've had we've had quite a lot of floods um, uh, happening um, in in the past few years, and um, uh, the question of again uh, related to floods, but also related to sea level rise is, is uh, do you uh, keep doing incremental adaptation? Do you build seawalls and raise them? Or, which might look like a very reasonable uh, thing to do if you're thinking in terms of time horizon of 10 years, but then become uh, a complete folly if you extend your time horizon to 30 or 40 years with, 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 continue, with sea level rises, sea level rise continuing to, 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 uh, to increase. And it seems to me this is where some of the interesting ideas um, uh, in the adaptation space are coming. Um, you know, the transformation, uh, 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 transformational adaptation as opposed to incremental, value-based adaptation, which complement um, uh, 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 risk-based adaptation and so on. But I'll stop here. Mm. No, thank you. That was really interesting. You, you know, quick, quick comment here, just very quick on, on something that Abbas mentioned. Please. Um, we've also heard from clients to, who wanted to understand which infrastructure they should bother defending. And, you know, so, you know, I'm all for... Um, you know, again, I'm, I think I have a positive attitude in general, right? So, uh, but we are now beginning to see, which we've never heard before, uh, clients speaking to us about, should we really protect everything? Or should we just give up on a few things and call it a day and just go protect something else instead because we won't have money to, to protect everything? And I think it's an interesting, you know, point that we've just reached. I don't think... I mean, I've, I've had a long career working with government. Uh, it's only the last couple of years that I've ever heard something like this being mentioned. Yeah, people are having to making that choices, I guess, rather than thinking they can do all of it. They realize that the um, resources won't stretch that far. I mean, if, if I may say there, um, uh, that this is precisely where the idea of um, um, uh, value-based um, um, adaptation is, is interesting in that it recognizes that choices have to be made. 
And what's interesting about it, it foregrounds uh, in the decision process um, what are the values that matter most and, and try to make the decision not just on base, based on risk calculation, but also on what are the values that matter most to the stakeholders, to the people involved in, in using that asset or benefiting from assets. So it's a way really of, of in introducing uh, a democratic uh, decision-making process in what is really a wicked problem. Um, a, a problem absolutely blighted by uncertainty, long time horizons, and fundamental disagreement, uh, even about the definition of the problem among stakeholders. Uh, so it's, it's a way of approaching the messiness uh, of the problem, of the kind of problem that, that, that George has just, has just mentioned. Absolutely. That brings me on uh, really well to uh, my next question about the people in the cities. And, you know, we've got to reflect the. The make sure that everyone's sort of brought along with it and how people interact with the city they live in. Ralph, maybe you could help me out here in the employment landscape that cities are going through as urban areas adapt. Are there migrations of people? Are people moving to the cities that are greener as well? Would a greener city be more attractive for people to live in? And do you see that movement of people um, being an issue for other urban areas? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, one thing that I've been looking at is, you know, what's actually happening right in this space. So, um, if you if you think about, you know, this this notion of, um, you know, are people moving to greener cities, right? If if you look at, you know, big picture, you know, cities are responsible for about three quarters of GDP on average, sort of in, in a country, um, and right now we got about somewhere around fifty-seven percent, say, of a population are in cities on average. So there's a there's a sort of magnetic pull uh, for job opportunities from outside of cities to cities. So that that process will continue. Um, you also have sort of uh, if you look around to see who's attracting people, you've got places like Austin, Texas. Where, where people are mostly millennials and and, and Gen Zs are, are moving in for a cost of living. Um, it's an, an attractive cultural scene um, that they're moving to. But what's really interesting is when you look at where the majority of long, young people, young adults are going, they're not really moving that far away. There was a really interesting um, study by coming out of researchers at Harvard University and U.S. Census Bureau looking at the radius of economic opportunity, right? And what they found was that 58% of young adults still live within 10 miles of where they grew up. 80% live within about 100 miles and 90% live within 500 miles, right? So what this really shows is that people are really not, young adults are not moving that much, right? So that's something to think about. So the point really, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm making here is that it may be better to sort of focus on the, the residents you have in your city, sort of place-based strategies for your residents. That seems to be um, what is probably the best use of your, your time is to really focus on that. Um, in with regards to the, the landscape of employment, you know, I think, you know, what's really happening now is is largely a response to um, the pandemic, you know, in some ways. I mean, George already mentioned that these trends were 
were happening. Um, but I think that, you know, we had this sort of major global experiment, right, in remote and hybrid work arrangements. Um, you know, now what's happening is there's this movement to try and bring people back into the the office. And I would say that a large majority of us probably still have hybrid work arrangements, right? I think that's still the case. That's here to stay. That's not going anywhere. And we, we had a symposium here at Virginia Tech um, through our center. And um, one of the things that that came out of this was a conversation about the future of work. We had a symposium here at Virginia Tech through the Center for Future Work Practices and Places looking at what's been happening. Um, one of the sort of interesting clusters of conversations that were being had were around real estate uh, professionals and, and architects. And uh, one of the things, one of the main takeaways from this conversation was that the number of vacant office spaces is growing, leasing activity is down, um, this is causing kind of a decrease in office investments and a decline in office inventory. Um, there's some caution, though. I think the policymakers are still thinking there may be a resurgence here. But what what this is leaning towards is more flexibility in how we're, we're thinking about downtown space. So, from a leasing perspective, you know, people were talking about enter and exit options on leases, which weren't really right. done before. Um, there's also sort of architectural um, thinking going on in terms of how do you bring a sense of place, culture, and life into the office space? So, you know, the idea of having sort of 24-hour buildings where it's an office space for part of the day and then it transitions into more public use at different times of the day. Um, and so you, I think this is this is what we'll see driving um, – sort of the transitions in a city context is this new understanding of the relationship between work and life. And, and that will be really interesting to see how that unfolds, I think, in, in the coming years. Absolutely. George, did you have a, a point there on? Yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more uh, with what Ralph just said. Um, I, I think, you know, rethinking infrastructure is going to be essential and no, I mean, before the pandemic, we, we used to hear this term, you know, the shared economy quite a bit. And, uh, you know, maybe now it should extend more to infrastructure as well. I mean, not just to Ubers and things like that. But look, I wanted to, to just say very quickly something. Again, just it occurred to me um, when we speak about it, because we try to define, you know, what is engagement and what does it mean for citizens to be engaged and you know, kind of having a word and, and where their cities is going. And it occurred to me, you know, it just an example that, you know, when it happened, I, it just kind of stayed with me. So if, if, you, if you'd indulge me, I'll, I'll just tell you what happened. I was in Singapore a few years ago, and I had a meeting um, with a few government officials, and one of them was super excited to show me an app that the city, that Singapore had just rolled out. And it was a phone app, you know, by the way, just to let you know, developing a phone app costs about $10,000. It's not a, you know, it's not an expensive undertaking, right? A phone app um, that you put on your smartphone, if you see a pothole or if you see, you know, trash that's not been picked up, all you need to do is just take a picture of it and the app sends it to the Department of Public Works, right? And since you took it with your phone, you know, the coordinates of that picture are, you know, sent along. Uh, then someone will send, you know, the city will send someone to fix the pothole and, you know, problem sol solved. Now, 
you know, having started life as an engineer, I can tell you that doing these uh, road, road inventory assessments, right, to, to figure out where the potholes, I mean, it's not a pleasant exercise and tends to be costly. So now you've kind of delegated this to your own citizens, right? So they're doing it on your behalf. And they're actually happy doing it because, you know, I mean, they're taking the picture, they're sending it to the city, the city fixes the pothole. So they feel part of this uh, dialogue, right? They're, they're part of, 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 of a bigger community. And I thought this is great, you know, and just a few months later, I was in a different city and I said, look, you know, I was in Singapore just a few months ago and they showed me this app and this app is just great. You know, you take a picture, and, you know, and sends it in and people are happy and the city is happy. Everyone's happy. And it was just, you know, kind of dead silence on the other side. And I said, what, what's wrong? He said, well, you know, we've had this app for, for quite a bit. You know, we've had it a long time. And I said, okay, well, what happened? They said zero uptake. You know, no one's using it. Now, why no one is using it in that particular city? And why was it so well adopted in Singapore? I mean, it could be because they didn't trust their city. Maybe they're not aware of it. Maybe they don't think that anything will happen. I mean, I don't know what exactly. I mean, it could be a nice study, right, to figure out why no one is using it. But the fact that no one is using it, I mean, that tells me about a different level of engagement uh, within that city than what, what I saw in, in Singapore. And, you know, how do you get to that point where people actually want to help out, want to be part of a better living environment? Just Ralph, I was very interested in what you said about the um, people, the statistics about people who actually, young people staying close um, what, what lies behind it? Uh, I'm just I'm just intrigued. Is it the new flexibility of work? Is it that people value connectedness more than um, economic opportunity? I'm just intrigued as to. Uh, it surprises me. I, I don't know those statistics, but it surprised me. It was, it's quite counterintuitive. I don't know if George agrees, but yeah, I mean, you think the narrative. I mean, what what you find is it's um, those people who are traveling are generally from well-off families. They have the means and resources to do so. So it could be a sort of a wealth effect that's part of this and the cost of living increases. I mean, if you think about the population, they've, they've gone through a global financial crisis and then they went through the pandemic, right? So they've had a two back-to-back -back within a decade, very significant economic hits. And I think that's really one of the sort of, I would imagine, I think that's one of the really um, important factors here. Um, you know, I was also thinking about our conversation earlier where Abash, you were saying like government can have a really potent responsibility here. And, and George was pointing at the role of the private sector and what motivates them. I think there's also kind of the middle ground as well, where you've got um, community cooperatives kind of leading change. Um, and you can think about, well, they might have a different return. They might say, as long as we get our money back that we invest, we don't need necessarily a profit. There might be public banks. There might be um, different kinds of financing that, that will come into play. And I think this, this is what the community wealth building, donut economics, degrowth agendas, that's the kind of thinking that they're bringing to the table. And one other final thing, that you just reminded me of, Abbas, for your question, is that this the millennials, sort of Gen Z, they are very, very passionate about issues such as climate change and the fact that we need to really rethink consumption habits. They're the ones who are going to be driving the, the transformation in cities. And they'll, they, they will bring 
different um, sort of guiding outcomes to the table. I'll be like, this is what we want to see happen. And the profit motive, I think, will still be there. But I think there'll be other motives, like you're indicating, driving the decision-making process. And so it's really going to be a fascinating future. And we'll, we'll see and, and it's interesting what, in, in light of what, what George said earlier, too, about the importance to recognize that communities and government will have a different idea about what is a successful rate of return compared to the private sector. I think that that, that, that sounds like not just a problem, is, 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 but, but an opportunity, too, um, to capitalize on those, on those differences in, in expectations. Thank you. Yeah. Definitely. I don't want to uh, leave this conversation about cities without touching on um, lower income households uh, and making sure that everyone's taking along uh, with the transition and make sure that no one's left behind. Uh, George, maybe you could uh, help me on that. How do we make sure that all, all citizens of cities from all backgrounds are taken along with the, with the transition? So, look, I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, the, the, the quick, easy answer is affordable housing. And, and I think we've seen some examples in places like Vienna, where the city, in fact, has made sure that uh, they actually, the city still owns quite a bit of the uh, residential stock. And, you know, they, they make sure that this, you know, everyone, um, whether rich or poor, you know, has access to some, some affordable housing. Uh, that's not everywhere. And I think if you look at the history of Vienna, you know, and, and just kind of trace how they, they got to this point. I mean, there are some good reasons why they're here. We're, we're seeing actually, um, even though a lot of cities are trying to do something, but with uh, rising real estate uh, prices, it's, it's actually what we're seeing in many other cities is a rising problem of homelessness. Uh, you know, the Bay Area comes to mind, but uh, you know, I mean, we've been actually working with quite a few cities now uh, using data analytics to, to try, and I'm sure this will not satisfy your question, David, but to try to prevent homelessness from happening because uh, for cities to intervene before a person becomes homeless is a far easier task uh, than to try to actually um, get them out of homelessness. So we've we've been trying to do... Uh, a lot of work in that area. So affordable housing, I think, is is the way to go. But, you know, how do you achieve that uh, in places where real estate prices have gone just astronomically high um, is still a big challenge. But, Ralph, I think... Yeah, I'm I mean, sure I, we'll, we'll you know, more. land trusts is one way, right? So you put land in trust and you take maybe 40 50% of the value out of the equation and you just end up buying the property, not the land, right? So I think that's a that's a a tool in the community wealth building sort of toolkit that people have been using. So I think that's something if you're targeting specifically um, housing that you could think about. So that's why I like these new economic ideas, because they have a whole range of ways of thinking that haven't been deployed at scale, right? Um, You know, in terms of kind of, I think, David, your question was like, how can we advance inclusive sort of growth approaches? Um, you know, one one thing that I've been thinking about is this kind of, you know, we probably need, if we're looking at energy, some kind of um, industrial policy for energy that really pulls everyone together. You know, in the 80s, you, this idea of industrial policy was um, focused on kind of manufacturing, like steel and automobiles. But there's kind of a resurgence of it happening right now. Um, Danny Roderick has been writing about this kind of 
rebirth of industrial policy, but in the context of things like sustainable development. So what it really means is saying, like, a, you know, we need this kind of mission-led industrial policy. It also feels a bit like um, what Mariana Mazzucato talks about in terms of this kind of mission-led agendas. So if you if you put on the table sort of what you really want to see happening, we want to see this um, renewable energy transition and we want it to be inclusive. Now you've set the sort of boundary around the solution space that you want to see emerge and you open up people's creativity in how to do that. And I think that's kind of you know, with the tools that we've used in the past to develop and transform, you know, we, we they're still very useful today. I think what we need to do is is just remember what works and then try and lean into that in a way that allows creativity and innovation to happen. And I and when I say innovation, technology is a way to think about it, but there's also institutional innovation in the laws, regulations, policies. You need to change them, innovate them. There's organizational sort of innovation within the business firms, like how they operate, what's motivating them. And then there's societal change and innovation, which is really about the value systems we're bringing to the table and what we ex- you know, expect to see happening. So the innovation is a much broader concept, I think, than just technology. And if, if we think in those terms, we, we're much more likely to have inclusive forms of change. So I'll just just a couple of ideas to think about. Really interesting. One last question then before we go. Um, what, what what piece of advice, what one piece of advice would you perhaps offer cities, um, to particularly any of those that are attending COP, that are looking to become innovation and employment hubs within the green transition? What one piece of advice would you uh, try and get across to them uh, ahead of COP um, this year? Abbas? I'd say... Um, don't reduce the project of sustainability into an exercise in carbon calculus um, or just merely turning your city into a magnet uh, for capital. Important, important as those two things are. I think recognizing the historical opportunity for transforming our cities and transforming the way we live that is offered, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, that is offered by, uh, by, 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 you know, by, by all the thinking that is going on uh, at the moment, at this, at this point in history. And I'm thinking history in, um, uh, uh, in, 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 in two ways. The first way is, uh, I think I spoke to, about this a little bit earlier, you know, the last 300 years undoing um, uh, the effect of, 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 of motorization on our cities. But there is another um, a, a, a larger historical lens, which you can go back to um, uh, 10,000 years with the end of the last ice age and the uh, emergence of agriculture-based civilization, which gave rise uh, to cities. I think right from the start, cities offered um, um, uh, offered a promise, if you like, um, uh, uh, that um, uh, you can have richer um, uh, 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 more secure, li- more secure, and more fulfilling lives in city. But at the same time, cities have always generated also a lot of insecurity, inequality, disease, alienation. And it seems to me this is an ongoing process of how we live in cities, not just the fact that we are living increasingly mm. in cities. So the question is, can we tip the scale um, uh, in favor of uh, uh, in favor of the positive part 
of this of this duality. Um, now, of course, only time will tell, and I'm sure some cities will do that better than others. Uh, but I think we should aim for nothing less. Absolutely, uh, Ralph. One bit of advice. So um, I'll say something different to what we've talked about before, right? So I think what we need is a a radical integration agenda, right? And this goes back to um, some uh, John Dernbach, right, a scholar of sustainable development, environmental lawyer, twenty years ago talked about the you know, this being the most important thing to advance sustainable development. It's not super exciting, but integrated decision-making. It's vertical integration from the international to sort of regional European down to national and all the way down to local. So you've got that vertical integration, horizontal integration at every level. So we've talked about energy, thinking, transportation, housing, food production, like we need to integrate horizontally to make sure that everything is aligned on each plane. Um, then you've got procedurally integrating. So the process of making decisions. So do you need an environmental impact assessment, for example? Doesn't mean do you have to listen to the outcome, which is where substantive integration comes in. You've got to set the agenda firmly in place to say, this is exactly what we want to see happen. You have to make progress on the environment, on the economy, on social outcomes, period. So that's what I'm saying. Radical intervention, radical integration, I think is maybe not very exciting, but it's, I think, the thing that will help us advance and make progress. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and final word to George, any piece of advice that cities should be looking David, I'm going to actually pick up on two things that, you know, one thing that Abbas mentioned and the other that Ralph mentioned, and I'm going to try to meld them together. So um, Abbas said, you know, cities need to learn from each other, right? And, you know, because a challenge may have already been solved somewhere else. And I, I and I strongly believe in this. I think the uh, collaboration, the learning, and we've seen some of that already happening. For instance, if you look at the C40 a network of cities, if you look at uh, what the Rockefeller started, which then became the 100 Resilient Cities uh, work. So I think there's, you know, a lot of sharing that that can happen that can be helpful. And, you know, I can tell you when, when I meet with clients, I you know, the first thing I hear is that we're, you know, different from anyone else. And I agree. I mean, they are different, but I mean, there is still some commonality, right? So let, let's focus on the commonality instead of just focusing on the difference. Uh, the other thing that, that uh, you know, I, I want to also mention, and this is something I think that Ralph just alluded to, we've worked on a lot of national transition, you know, what, you know, just transition at the national level, right? So these are national governments trying to transition out from a, uh, a carbon footprint uh, into something that's more renewable and they're just worried about what will happen to the workforce, right? Once that transition is affected. So they're worried about those who are in fossil fuel industries and they're worried about the ones that need to be trained. And we've worked with, you know, national governments on these just transition uh, strategies. I'd love to see more cities do what Copenhagen and others are doing. So do the city transition strategy and you know, by, by some luck, if like Ralph mentioned, if that can be integrated vertically and horizontally, uh, that, that, that would be wonderful, right? But I think right now we're just seeing some top, uh, I should say, more top-down work 
not as much work at the grassroots level. Absolutely. That's all we have time for on this episode of Talking Transitions. My thanks go to Abbas, Ralph and George for joining us. Please do rate, review and share the podcast to keep this conversation going. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you.